Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, making agency spending more efficient in the state. I think it's about time for we, the leadership, to take a look at our tax codes and see what we can do to better plan for the future of the state of Mississippi. Then the Zika mosquito is now transmitting the disease in South Florida. Should Mississippians be worried? Later, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on the humble beginnings of a chemist and the personal story of one organ transplant recipient. That's all next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A number of legislative working groups have been established and are working on two objectives over the next five months, finding ways to improve the state's tax system and making state agency spending more efficient. The focus on efficiency comes after many state agency budget cuts, low tax collections, and patching the state budget with money from the Rainy Day Fund. State Representative Joel Baumgar is from District 58. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby one of his jobs as a member of the Medicaid Working Group is to see where the money is being spent. Well, I've been asked to serve on the Medicaid Committee, so we're going to dig into the budgets and look at where the money's getting spent. And uh, in the case of Medicaid, spending's up over 60% over the last five years, so dig into why that is, what's driving it, and uh, ultimately how, many do we, how do we get more Mississippians better paying jobs so they can afford private health care. It appears on paper that that is the big elephant in the room, uh, Medicaid. Do you have any ideas, uh, anything that you're, you're thinking of right now about how to tackle that? I mean, a lot of it is trying to figure out what flexibility we have within the federal constraints. I mean, Washington, D.C. dictates so much of Medicaid spending and uh, minimum mandatory coverages and all that sort of stuff. That That's what I want to dig into is what flexibility do we even have just telling, you know, short of just telling the federal government, no, we're just not going to do that. Because of all of the uh, technical aspects of Medicaid, state, federal, do you think that's going to be more difficult than some of these other committees? Yeah, I think probably because there's a lot less flexibility. I mean, some of it is, I think, the the instant response to everything will be and has always been, well, we can't do that because the federal government won't let us. So part of it is we ought to figure out, well, when is that the truth and when is it not the truth? You know, what are the actual federal constraints? What states have attempted to do things and been told they're not allowed to versus just said they wanted to and the feds say, well, we'd rather you didn't. Well, rather we didn't is different than saying you're not allowed to. So. We saw presentations today from both the House Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor, and I think both of their tones uh, towards this issue were a little bit different. Although they were saying the same thing, Speaker Gunn was saying it's not a witch hunt, but Lieutenant Governor Reeves was a little bit more passionate about finding efficiency in government. How do you feel? I mean, I think let's look into it. I don't, the, the interesting thing is it's hard to find anybody that thinks government is the right size. So almost everybody would say, well, government's way too big. Well, if it's too big, it's too big in specifics. It's not just you can't be too big generally, but the right size in in specifics. So uh, I think I think there's a, a universal belief that government is too big and that it has grown a lot over the last five years even. Um, and so we need to figure out what's driving that growth and how do we curb that growth. 
um, ultimately every dollar that the government collects or spends is a dollar taken from the taxpayer that they cannot spend on whatever they would have preferred they spend it on. And so I think we need to uh, make government as small as possible because it, it allows people to spend money on what they want instead of what the government decides for them that they have to spend money on. Do you think it's realistic to make final recommendations to the next session? I think depending on the topic and the, the area, I think there certainly will be for some things. Um, some agency budgets inevitably will be so complex that it takes longer. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any reason with the time we have that we can't bring forward ideas that are actionable. And that's the purpose of doing it. So I'm excited about it. MPB's Mark Rigsby with State Representative Joel Baumgar. State Senator Willie Simmons represents District 13. He tells Mark Rigsby an examination of the state tax code is overdue. Well, let me start by thanking the leadership for having the vision to do this. I am a Democrat. I've been in the Senate now for 23 years, and I have voted to increase taxes and fees, and I've also voted to decrease them or get rid of some. And I think it's about time for we, the leadership, to take a look at our tax codes and see what we can do to better plan for the future of the state of Mississippi. So my role is going to be to work with the various groups that I'm going to be working on and to try and have some very positive suggestions, and hopefully they will be accepted as we work through this process on changing it to make it better. Uh, Our tax codes definitely need to be reformed. Uh, We need resources to do the things we need to do. Uh, So those are things I want to be working on. Let me ask you specifically about being on a committee to streamline government agencies. How do you see your role? Well, I see a dual role. I see a dual role, and I don't necessarily classify it as streamline, but to make government more efficient and more effective uh, in doing that. So in some cases, you may look at it and say you streamline, and in other cases, you may look at it and say you want to grow. For instance, the committee that you uh, Department of Transportation, uh, we can streamline the Department of Transportation perhaps in some areas, uh, but we got to grow the Department of Transportation because it doesn't have the resources it need in order to take care of our infrastructure around transportation. So it, it's a dual role that we'll be playing, and I just don't see it as one of doing a witch hunt, so to speak, to streamline government. Uh, it's to make government more efficient and effective. Do you feel like You'll be finding something? You'll be finding waste in government? I feel like we're going to find ways to make government more effective and efficient. We are looking at, in some cases, an antiquated uh, tax code. Uh, when we look at some of our tax, uh, some of the primary taxes, uh, such as corporate and personal, uh, we have not increased those taxes since the 80s. Uh, we have not uh, done anything to increase our usage fee for transportation since 1980s. So there's some things that we need to revisit. Uh, society's changed, cost of living, cost of producing and construction and building things have changed and increased tremendously. Uh, so we're operating with antiquated system that was put in place by our founding fathers or our forerunners a few years ago, back in the 80s. And here we now, 2016, and we have not changed that. So it's time that we look at it and do an assessment to see if it's working. If it's working, let's continue to do it. If it's not working, let's change it. When we're looking at the Department of Transportation, at least on paper, and from the presentation from Speaker Gunn and Lieutenant Governor Reeves today, it would appear that the spending 
or the growth of the Department of Transportation here in Mississippi has almost gotten to about 40, 40%, 50% growth. How do you see it? Uh, basically, any growth that you have seen uh, in transportation, uh, because of the way we fund our transportation system, we fund our transportation through a user fee, and that's the 18 cents flat rate. That has not changed since the 1980s. Uh, we have not seen uh, that much of an increase in usage. So as a result of it, those dollars tend to stay kind of flat. Now, what we have seen an increase is in felt monies because we rely so heavily on the level of felt funding that we get to take care of our infrastructure. So, uh, yes, we have seen an increase, uh, but it has not been an increase because we have increased the usage fee, the fuel tax, uh, the diesel and the fuel taxes remain the same at 18 cents. And going forward, as we look at uh, more efficient vehicles on the road and we look at other forms of, of fuel that's going to be used, uh, you can expect uh, that revenue coming from the fuel tax. If we remain in the antiquated state that we're in, the 18 cents per gallon flat rate, you may see a decrease as opposed to being flat as it's been in past years. MPB's Mark Rigsby with State Senator Willie Simmons. Up next, the Zika mosquito is now transmitting the disease in South Florida. Should Mississippians be worried? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will. Follow history in the making right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. Join me each Tuesday for Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. Each week we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental obstacles to family interaction, from depression to handling life's disruptions, discovering things that make you happy, or how to get around things keeping you from your happiness. I want to hear what's going on in your life. Relatively Speaking, part of the Daily Southern Remedy series, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi health officials say there have now been 14 cases of travel-related Zika virus in Mississippi. This is after more cases of Zika transmitted from mosquitoes to humans have been discovered in South Florida. All of the Mississippi cases are in people who contracted the disease out of the country. Donald Yee is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Southern Mississippi He tells MPB's Evelina Burnett, mosquito-borne illnesses often are specific to certain mosquitoes. In terms of the Zika virus or any other mosquito-transmitted disease, we always have to keep in mind that it takes usually a certain mosquito and then obviously the human populations to sort of have this interaction to where we can get transmission. What's different about Mississippi compared to Florida is that in Florida they have large populations of the yellow fever mosquito Aedes aegypti, and this is the mosquito that is the principal vector for Zika, and this is the one that's causing all the transmission in South and Central America as well as in the Caribbean. In Southern Florida and some other areas of Florida, they have Aedes aegypti, and this is probably the animal that's most responsible for transmitting it. Right now in Mississippi, we don't have Aedes aegypti, which means it's not impossible to have local cases, but it's just more unlikely for us to have local cases of Zika. Well, why do we not have that mosquito anymore? 
Well, there's a, a number sort of, of, of historical reasons. So the yellow fever mosquito used to be distributed throughout the entire Gulf Coast area, and it actually ranged all the way up into the Philadelphia area back into the 1700s. So even back uh, during the, you know, working on the Constitution, the founding fathers were always worried about getting yellow fever from this mosquito uh, during the summer. Um, one of the things that happened was obviously controlling mosquito populations through uh, county and governmental mosquito control efforts. But the biggest thing that happened is that in the 1980s, a new mosquito invaded the United States called the Asian tiger mosquito, Aedes albopictus. This is a very common uh, black mosquito with white stripes on its body. And this animal has seemed to displace Aedes aegypti in most of its historical range. And so now there's only a few places in the United States where we still have Aedes aegypti. And those are mostly big cities, places like Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, and in southern uh, Florida as well. So we've been pretty much free of this mosquito for about 15 or so years in the state of Mississippi. MPB's Evelina Burnett with USM biologist Donald Yee. Up next, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on the humble beginnings of a chemist. This is Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will. Follow history in the making right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Teresa Hickman always knew she wanted to be a scientist, specifically a chemist. Even when she was growing up in Louisville, picking cotton to help her family earn a living, her mind was on the future. Teresa Hickman shares her story with her son, Frederick, in this stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour in Mississippi. I grew up in Louisville, Mississippi. I had mom and dad both there. My father was a very strong individual. He had a third-grade education, but he was the smartest psychiatrist I've ever met. (laughs) Yes, and I've met some good ones. My mother was a devout Christian, and she was calm and quiet. And um, their technique for raising us was so, it was almost uh, merged together. It was almost as if they read each other's mind. Uh, The one thing they always did was agree on whatever the story was when they were in front of us. Now, what they did Otherwise, I have no idea. But they were always totally together, and that's what made raising us so solid because we knew that they both agreed. Daddy was so strong, and I didn't worry about being afraid. Now, yes, we had crosses burned in our yards, and we had our mailboxes blown up, but I still weren't afraid because he was there. And that led into my adulthood, so I didn't have a lot of fear or anxieties to deal with. Can you tell me about your brothers and sisters? There are... Seven children, three boys and four girls. I am the next to the baby, what we call knee baby. (laughs) I have one brother below me. And so I kind of grew up with the guys, but my sisters were 16 and 11 years older than me. So I mostly responded to what the boys taught me. They were very, well, now, let me take that back. They weren't very cooperative. (laughs) Daddy made sure that they were cooperative. And they like to say that Daddy was so crazy about me because he hadn't had a girl in six years. But I got to tell them, Daddy knew they were heathens. He was trying to keep me alive. But he was very strict about how they treated me. So it made my life easy. Can you tell us about um, the work that your father did? First, we were farmers. We had an 80-acre farm, and we lost it to soil erosion. 
and we worked very, very hard and picked cotton and did whatever we needed to do to try and keep it. But because of soil erosion, if you don't make the cotton, you can't pay the note. After that, he started to work for George Pacific. He worked for George Pacific probably six or seven years before he got. George Pacific, that's a. It's a paper company. Okay. Probably six or seven years before he got stomach cancer, terminal, which was what he died from. So your father's passed and your rock, if you will, has passed. Then what happens? Well, I was fine because Daddy always prayed that we would be fully grown before he passed away. Mm-hmm. The baby was 19 when he died, so I was well on my way. I was actually in college. My mother, you know, was present, but mother was very, very spoiled, which I thought was wonderful by Daddy. So when he passed, we continued to spoil her. Coming from the cotton field, when was the last time you picked cotton? We had a rule in the household that you pick cotton up until your 11th grade year because they really wanted you to graduate. So I would say the last time I picked, I was 16 because I graduated from high school at 17. So 16 years old, you're picking cotton. The years later, you are responsible for helping the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics or Mississippi, Mississippi Law Enforcement. Crime Laboratory. Crime Laboratory, putting the criminals away. Can you talk about that journey? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I knew at 14 I wanted to be a, a chemist. I just didn't know what kind. I wanted to be a scientist of some kind, and plus all of my scores on ACTs and everything was the highest in science and math. So when I finished the bachelor's, I did that in Chicago, Illinois. And at that time, they had a freeze high on it. It was like an introduction to forensics because they told me I could go on the street as a cop and become a forensic scientist in 18 months. And I told them if they could find a partner I could stand behind for 18 months, I'd take the job. <laughs> But then we moved back to Mississippi, and there just wasn't any job, so I ended up back in college because of the money. When I graduated, the head of the lab graduated from Jackson State also, and he wanted someone from Jackson State to work with him. So I got the job, and it required me to do chemical analysis, which was, I'm a chemist in my heart, and uh, the testifying in court was not a problem. We were well-trained. And it doesn't matter what you do in life. If you're open-minded and trained, you'll be fine. You're on a farm growing up. There is no CSI. There is no television. Or if there is a television, there's very little television about police work. How do you get the idea of becoming a chemist on a farm? I read a lot. Always did. That was my escape. I mean, and so the one thing that the United States respected was chemists. Whenever the people went into outer space, away from (laughs) all the destruction, there was always a chemist on board. So I decided that if the earth were ever destroyed, if I were a really good chemist, I might be on board. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will. Follow history in the making right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Gary Snook lives in Montana with excruciating pain. It's like being boiled in oil 24 hours a day. His only relief comes from opioid medication, but he leaves his state to get a prescription. They may be in pain for the rest of their life, so how do we treat them without actually harming them? The dilemma of prescribing opioids in Montana later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Every year, almost 1,500 Mississippians are on a waiting list for some sort of organ transplant. The challenge is that supply often doesn't equal demand. When Rachel Payne of Van Cleve was 27, her doctor told her she wasn't going to make it. Suffering from kidney disease, the single mother seemed to have run out of options. She tells us she initially wasn't even allowed on the transplant list. But thankfully, that changed. I received a kidney transplant, and I will celebrate 16 years this November. (laughs) Wow, that's awesome. I always get teary-eyed because it was such a a profound experience. What was the problem with your original kidney? I received an anthrax vaccine when I joined the Marine Corps at 18, and it reacted with my immune system. I ended up with a disease called IgA nephropathy. It's an autoimmune disorder that attacked my kidneys. What were the symptoms? How were you feeling? The first symptom was I had uh, blood and protein in my urine. I ended up with very high blood pressure, uh, but that was all contained. It was managed fairly well for the next eight years. When I hit full-blown renal failure, it was a whole another kettle of fish. I had a lot of edema, which is a lot of swelling. I did not tolerate dialysis well. I ended up having multiple grand mal seizures. My blood pressure was off the charts. And in fact, I was told that I needed to make my final arrangements. I was 27. Uh, They said that I would not be considered for a transplant because it would be a waste of a good kidney. And that is what my doctor told me. My son was three at the time. I was a single parent. And I said, that's not going to work for me. I can't prepare my son for that. And he cautioned me that they would not allow me on the transplant list. He wouldn't even talk to me. Well, I camped out on the coordinator's doorstep. And uh, my mother said that that was typical of me. I was very stubborn. I was always the type to take the bull by the horns. And it's ironic because what drove her nuts during my childhood was going to end up saving my life. So taking the bull by the horns became my personal mantra. I loved it very much. Every time I was in the hospital, which was a lot, I looked at it as fighting a bull. So November 2nd of 2000, I received a call late at night that we all hope and pray for that they might have a kidney for me. I had to be at the hospital the next morning. I was cautioned not to get my hopes up that two other people were called for the same kidney. This is normal protocol because there's such a small window of opportunity in which to do a transplant. So I'm in the hospital. The the nurse has the needle in my arm to try and do a final cross match. And they have six antigens. It's different proteins that they look at when doing a match. If you're a sibling, you might get a four to five point match, and that's fantastic. They'll run with it every time. Well, they had the needle in my arm. The doctor came in and said this gentleman was an adamant organ donor. He was a lawyer from Texas and a retired bull rider. So my mother and I looked at each other, and then we looked at the doctor and said, that kidney is mine. And it was an identical match all the way across the board. So I was very honored last April to meet his entire family. And we're very close. Uh, This, at the end of August, I'm going to Destin to spend a few days with them. They're going down there for vacation. They're all from Texas. And so I like to say I'm part Texas. But that man, being an organ donor, and his family respecting his wishes to do so, they saved my life. They saved my son's life. And I cry every time. So I am very, very thankful. It has such a big impact. And I was just saved by his one kidney. When you consider you can save the life of up to eight people and profoundly affect the lives of many, many more, why would you not become an organ donor?
That was Rachel Payne of Van Cleve, an organ transplant recipient. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks, then at 10, in legal terms, and at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show, there are several ways you can listen on our website at mpbonline.org, through the MPB Multimedia app, or search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering hybrid doctorates, K-12 leadership, higher education, and math education. Combine online and face-to-face courses to graduate in three years. Details at education.olemiss.edu. From the studios at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California, I'm Molly Wood, filling in for Ben Johnson. This is Marketplace.